Well, let's open our Bibles to Revelation, the book of Revelation, chapter 6. And if there's any children here, kindergarten to second grade, they can be dismissed to Children's Church if they'd like. Revelation chapter 6, any kids kindergarten to second grade and head off to Children's Church and On January 12th, the images began to flicker across our television screens and our websites and the newspaper as we began to see the the pictures of the destruction of the earthquake in Haiti. And we began to see the collapsed buildings, the rubble, the people without tools, just bare hands trying to dig people out from the rubble. Uh, we saw the survivors who survived the, the crashing buildings but were now in the streets, uh, desperate, without shelter, without food, without resources, and the rescuers trying to bring the resources to them but, but having difficulty even getting them there. And, and, and just horrific images. And, and, you know, when we see things like that, it, it evokes a response or a reaction in us. Just, uh, it stirs up a lot of things. I think one of the good things that, that stirs up in us hopefully, is compassion. You know, as followers of Jesus Christ, we can't just see things in the world and turn a blind eye. You know, at the very least, we need to pray and be moved with compassion for the sufferings of others. And I just want to commend this church on responding quickly with compassion. I know many of you have given money to uh, our Haiti uh, project. We've sort of partnered with another missions organization called... uh, a mission door, and some of you have given money through that or through other organizations. I know some of you brought uh, tents and sleeping bags and flashlights, and we collected those the last couple of weeks. And we have uh, some Haitian families in our church, and they know people down there. And they, you know, we sent these things down through those uh, connections to, to people in need in Haiti. So it's just great to see the response of compassion, and we need to have that response. But you know, sometimes when these when these tragedies happen, whether it's an earthquake or a famine or a war. Uh, you know, there's other responses we have too. And another one we sometimes have is, I think, a questioning and maybe even a doubting sometimes, wondering, God, how can these things take place in your world? If you're the king and you're sovereign, like we've been studying in Revelation 4 and 5 the last two Sundays, you know, why does this happen? What is your purpose in all of these things. And I think that question can become increasingly acute for believers, for those of us who call ourselves Christians, because for us, you know, God is not just king and ruler, but he's also father. And we think, Father, we're your children who love you. There are people who follow you and love you. So, Father, why are you allowing these things to happen to your beloved children? And so when Christians go through difficult periods of testings, setbacks, illness, trials. You know, Christians aren't immune from earthquakes and famine and war zones. And so when Christians go through these things, it's sort of like, Lord, why are you letting these things happen? And and I think this may have been something that these first century Christians to whom the book of Revelation was originally written were wrestling with because they loved Christ, they were trying to stand for Him, and yet they lived under the power of the Roman government who, who was persecuting and in harming Christians. You know, it's like Jesus is Lord, but Caesar seems to be in control. So how does that all fit together? 
And so today we come to Revelation chapter 6, and it's just an interesting passage because I think it sort of forces that tension in front of us. Revelation chapter 6, you may have never read it, but I bet you've heard of it. It's the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Uh, One of those things that people have heard that phrase, and uh, this is the origin of that phrase, these four horsemen of the apocalypse. And it's a vision of... These chaotic, destructive, hard-to-understand forces that are at work in the world, and yet also God's sovereignty reigning over them. So let's just read our text today. It's Revelation chapter 6, verses 1 to 8. It says, I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come! I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown. And he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. When the Lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come! And then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make men slay each other. To him was given a large sword. When the Lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come! I looked and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. And then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a day's wages and three quarts of barley for a day's wage. And do not damage the oil and the wine. And when the lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come! I looked and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death. And Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague by the wild beasts of the earth. So we're now into that part of Revelation where God's judgments start unfolding. It's, it's disturbing. It's challenging. It's hard to understand. But, but let's just kind of understand this vision first and sort of pull it apart. And then, and then I want to return to that question of how do these things happen in God's world after we've sort of taken time to sort of sit with this vision. So uh, sort of three observations or three interpretive checkpoints that we need to walk through in this passage to really understand it. And the first is is the seals. What are the seals? Because Jesus the Lamb is opening these seals, and when He does, bad things happen. So, so what are these seals? Well, if you were here last Sunday, you'll remember when we studied chapter 5 that there was a scroll that had seven seals. If you look back at chapter 5, verse 1, um, those of you who were here last Sunday, it's kind of a review. But it says in chapter 5, verse 1, Then I saw in the right hand of him who sits on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. So here's God Almighty on his throne. He has this scroll with seven seals. And we talked last Sunday about what that scroll symbolized. That scroll symbolized, in essence, um, kind of like God's sovereign plan and purpose to bring about his end times kingdom in which he will finally judge his enemies, and save his people. So that scroll symbolizes all of the hopes of the Old Testament when God promised that that there would come a day when the Messiah would come and God's kingdom would come. And when his kingdom came, those who've rejected him and all the nations that have stood against him would finally be dealt with and his oppressed people would be saved and rescued. And so that's what that scroll is. It's that end times hope. But the problem is, here it has seven seals, and nobody can open it in chapter 5. If you were here last Sunday, remember that? The search was made. Who can open the scroll? Nobody could open it. 
But then Jesus comes into the picture. Jesus, who is the lamb who was slain. Look at uh, verse 6 of chapter 5. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. Now jump down to verse 7. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Jesus has the authority to take the scroll. Verse 9. They sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. So Jesus has been crucified, buried, raised. He ascends to heaven. And we have this scene in chapter 5 of kind of the, the triumphal entry of the the Prince of Peace, back into his royal throne room. And he's coming in to praises and pomp and circumstance. And he sits on his throne after his resurrection. And he takes the scroll. And now he begins to open its seals. So, so with the resurrection of Jesus, these end times things, uh, these end time prophecies and seals begin to be unleashed. And we've talked about this before, that the end times is properly understood biblically as that entire period from the first to second comings of Jesus. So, you know, people, I've said this before, people sometimes ask me, Pastor, do you think we're in the end times yet? And I always say, yes, I know we are. We have been from when Jesus first came. This is this end times period as God's kingdom is coming. You know, what did Jesus preach? He said, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. And so the kingdom has begun. We're living in this final phase, and he's popping these seals. And every time he pops a seal open, more of God's plans are unfolded before us. So let's look at the next thing there. So those are the seals. The next thing we've got to deal with are these horses. We've got the four horsemen of the apocalypse. There's a, a white horse. There's a red horse. There's a black horse and a green horse. And each one has someone riding on it. So, so when I was getting up this morning, I was putting my clothes on. And I was standing there, you know, I was half awake. And I realized they had a white shirt and they had a black coat and I had green pants. I'm like, I need red and I'll have all the colors. So that's why I'm wearing a tie today. Um, I, I'm not improving my, my, my taste. I just, you know, I was like, I'm going to be the, you know, the preacher of the apocalypse today. So wait till we get to chapter 17 and study the great prostitute. It's going to be great. Um, okay, so, so here's these four horsemen, <laughs> the four colors. And uh, what, are these horse, what do these horses and their riders represent? Uh, well, they, they, I would say these riders represent these forces of chaos, destruction, evil that are galloping around the world that make the things happen on the TV where we're like, how is that happening in God's world? These are these terrifying forces of destruction. Um, horses in general uh, are symbols in the Bible of military power and strength. You know, what does a horse symbolize to you? Maybe we all have different feelings. Maybe you grew up with horses and you're like, oh, I love horses. But in the Bible, they tend to, to connote military power and warfare. So they're kind of a scary image biblically. You know, when Moses uh, was standing there on the edge of the Red Sea and Pharaoh's armies had been destroyed, he sang this song, the horse and rider thrown into the sea. Horses pull chariots. Chariots are used in battle. This is the kind of imagery you find in the, the Bible around horses. So here are these four horses and four horsemen riding upon them. And, and each of these horsemen are given these powers 
to wreak havoc on the earth. So let's look at each of the horsemen. Let's look at these destructive forces. We'll start with the the white one uh, in verse 2. He says, I looked and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow and he was given a crown. And he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. So that's the first horse, the, the guy on the white horse. Now this is the one horseman if I could just kind of digress a little bit, where interpreters disagree as to what exactly this horseman represents. Um, Some people believe that he actually represents Jesus himself. Some people say this is Jesus riding forth to conquer for the gospel. Because look, he's riding on a white horse. There's only one other time a guy rides on the white horse in the book of Revelation. It's chapter 19 where Jesus returns on his white horse. Notice he has a crown. Uh, notice that he's uh, a conqueror, and we're told in, in Revelation that Jesus has conquered. I mean, we just, it was just right back there in chapter 5, verse 5. It says, Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. Now, the Greek word translated triumph here is the same Greek word for conquer. And it's the same Greek word for overcome in chapters 2 and 3. So, so Jesus is seen as a conqueror and who has a crown and he's on a white horse. White is often a symbol of heaven and righteousness in God's realm. So some people have said, this is probably Jesus himself riding forth to conquer. And, and I, I'm somewhat sympathetic to that, but I guess I'm of the school of thought. And this is, the, this is what's hard about Revelation. You have these symbols, they're hard to interpret. And I'm, a, I'm of the school of thought that says that this first horse is like the other three horses. It, it's a force of evil and destruction in the world. It's conquering. I just take it literally. It's kind of like, or more directly, maybe not literally, but more sort of face value that this is a, a conquering force. You know, just as one nation conquers another, then that nation gets conquered, and all the horrible things that happen when nations conquer nations. Uh, if you look at the text here, you have these four horses, and they all seem to be parallel. A seal is opened. A voice says, "Come." A horse comes out, and it's the same for all of the horses. Which, when things are parallel, they tend to, to be representing similar things. So it seems to be he's just one of the four horses of destruction. Not only that, but I don't really have time to, to go into this, but if you want to go back and you want to dig a little deeper, go back to Zechariah chapter 6. The four horses appear there, and they're the same colors, and they're all horses of judgment. So, so it seems, given the Zechariah background and uh, in the background here, in Revelation, this, this parallels. It seems more like this is a horse of judgment to me. I, it just doesn't seem like Christ. I mean, Jesus is the one opening the seals, not the, be, the one being sent out. So uh, I, I would probably lean that direction. And you know, Jesus isn't the only one given a crown and conquering in Revelation. Satan's forces have crowns. They rule to some degree. Uh, look at chapter 13. Um, here's another one of those interesting visions, Revelation 13. And here we see that, that Satan is given some power to conquer as well. He's in, he overcomes and triumphs to a degree. Revelation 13 is the beast out of the sea, this kind of big Godzilla thing. It comes out and stomps around and persecutes God's people. We'll get to that eventually. I, I take that beast to represent persecuting governments that persecute God's people. But if you look at Revelation 13:5, uh, it says the beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise his authority for 42 months. He opened his mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place in those who live in heaven. Here we go. He was given power to make war against the saints and 
to conquer them. So, so there's other people conquering in Revelation for different reasons. So going back to Revelation 6, I, I interpret this first horse to represent just the nations conquering nations. And not just nations against nations, but God's people being conquered too. You know, God's people are suffering in parts of the world. God's people are being put in prison by hostile governments. The beast wants to kill God's people so to speak. Now look at the next uh, horse. So the next one's the red one. All right? and, and this one represents warfare. Another one of these horrible disasters unleashed upon the earth. Look at verse 4. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make men slay each other. To him was given a large sword. And so not only has uh, conquest taking place, but that usually brings warfare with it. And, and so... Warfare is unleashed in the world. It's this chaotic force that's running amok. You know, think about the 20th century in the world. Probably the bloodiest century yet. I mean, how many people died in World War One, World War II, uh, Vietnam, Korea, Russia versus Afghanistan, uh, the Khmer Rouge killing people in Cambodia under Pol Pot. I mean, how many people have died because of warfare in the 20th century. I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if there were more in the 20th century than in the other centuries combined. I mean, the human race is not improving when it comes to morality and peace. It's getting worse. There's more bloodshed, not less. And, and here we see this sort of red horse symbolizing war and all the ravages of war. And you know what? Believers are not, Christians are not immune from this. When wars happen, Christians aren't miraculously exempted from, from the bloodshed that happens in the world. And so Christians are struggling with this too as these horses gallop over nations and peoples and cause devastation. The third horse, the black one, seems to me to represent economic instability, famine, inflation. Uh, you know, you look at this, this sixth horse. It says its rider was holding a pair of scales, sorry, the third horse here. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Scales are a symbol of economic transaction. Verse 6, Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a day's wages and three quarts of barley for a day's wage. Uh, translation, wicked bad inflation. <laughs> okay? a, a, a quart of wheat is uh, in ancient terms about how much you need to eat for a day for one person. And it costs a day's wages. So imagine... Whatever you earn for a whole day of work, things are so expensive, food is so expensive. You, let, let's say you got paid per day. You get your whole day's wage, and all you can buy with it is one super value meal at McDonald's. And you can't supersize it because it costs too much. <laughs> like That's how much things cost. That's what happens in a famine. That's what happens when prices get driven up. And so it's, it's economic instability and, and food being scarce and people just not being able to feed themselves and barely buy enough food for themselves and their family with a whole day's of, day of work. Um, and, and notice that he says, do not damage the oil and the wine. Like, why not? What is that all about? I, I think the best that I could interpret that is just be able to say that, that what this, this horse is doing has limits. That God has sort of set a limit. He says, you can't destroy the whole world. I'm setting limits around you. So this isn't the final judgment. It's, it's a limited judgment that's taking place before the coming of Christ. Um, and you know, believers are not immune from this either. 
Christians are losing their jobs in this economy. People struggle financially. Christians face famine in some parts of the world. Um, that We have missionaries in Europe who are getting pounded because the dollar has just crashed, you know, versus the euro. And, and we have, we have you know, missionaries we support in Europe who are struggling, and we're paying them the same amount of U.S. dollars, but it has less and less buying power. And so they're struggling as they're trying to preach the gospel. And so Christians struggle because of these horses as well. And, and we ask the question, Lord, what are you doing? Father, why is this so hard? Why are we going through these challenges? And then, of course, comes the last horse, the, uh, the cleanup batter, number four, the one who in some ways summarizes the previous three. This is the pale horse, so you could translate that Greek word, the green horse. And his name is Death, verse 8. I looked and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death. And Hades was following close behind him. Hades is, is sort of the abode of the dead. So you kind of see this horse killing and then Hades just scooping up the bodies and taking them to and it's just a terrifying image. Death and Hades riding along. It says, they were given the power over a fourth of the earth, not the whole earth. So again, there's limits on this judgment. It's not the final judgment yet. But they're given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. And so in some ways, I think this fourth horse just kind of summarizes and brings to culmination the effects of these cataclysms, these disasters, sword, and famine, and plague. I mean, just It's terrifying. And so, as the Lamb pops these seals, these horrific, catastrophic disasters and forces are unleashed all over the earth. And, and, and these horses just running around, galloping. And wherever they go, they bring disaster, leave disaster in their wake. You know, it reminds me of another teaching that Jesus gave on the end times. These horses and what they do, it, it has some similarities, and, and many commentators have pointed this out, and it sort of struck me as well. Uh, Jesus also taught about the end times, and he also taught that before he came again, there would be all kinds of difficulties and challenges and, and things that were troubling. Uh, put a bookmark here in Revelation 6. I'd like you to turn to Matthew chapter 24. Very similar language. Matthew chapter 24. It's on page 981 in your pew Bibles. So this is the story of when Jesus was being asked by His disciples about the end times. We're all curious about that, right? So are His disciples. Look at Matthew chapter 24, verse 3. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives... The disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Hey, tell us about the end times, Jesus. We're curious. Like, What's it going to be? Verse 4, Jesus answered, Watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, claiming I am the Christ, and will deceive many. Look, there are going to be people who are going to claim to be me and claim to be Messiahs. There are going to be other people dressed in white on white horses that you're going to think are me. It's not me. Don't be deceived. You know, don't be conquered by that deception. You know, stay faithful. Then he says, you will hear of what? Wars and rumors of wars. There's the red horse, the warfare, the bloodshed. He says, but see to it that you're not alarmed. Don't get freaked out. Such things must happen. The end is still to come. We haven't gotten there yet. 
Verse 7, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be nations trying to conquer each other and terrible things happening in the process. And then he says, there will be famines. There's the black horse. And earthquakes in various places. There will be these things that will just unsettle and displace people and, and uh, make people hungry and not be able to get the food that they need. And then I love verse 8. It kind of summarizes it so well. All these are the beginnings of the birth pains. Boy, what an image. Birth pains. Okay? Uh, you know, my wife's giving birth to four kids, and so I'm very familiar with the birth pains. All right? I, I, I told her, I said, we can't have another kid. I can't take it. Uh, you know? <laughs> the labor is it's just too much. I, I, it's hard on me. It's hard on me. It really... Um, but you know, you know the, there's the birthing moment when the baby is born, and it's such a it's such an amazing, miraculous moment. And and at that moment, you know, all is forgotten, and all the trials are forgotten, and you have the baby in your arms. It's a, a beautiful moment. And someday Jesus will return, and the kingdom of God will be fully birthed, and we'll rejoice, and we'll forget everything else. But leading up to that is pretty bad. <laughs> you know, there's contractions. And they get longer and more intense and closer together. And then you hit something you, you learn about in these birthing classes called transition, which is kind of like uh, sort of natural waterboarding. You know, it's just torture. It's horrible. And then you finally get to the pushing part, and then it's just, you know, screaming and, and fluids, and it's terrible. It's, uh, I, I'm, I'm still in counseling. Um, so, and then the birth happens, and you forget everything. Then you forget it all. You forget it all because you're like, wow, it's here. And, and so, you know, what a, what a very vivid image Jesus has given us of the end times. That, that the birth pains get worse and worse. And you think, oh, I can't get any worse than this. And then it gets harder and more severe and more intense. And then there will come a moment at the very end when things will escalate and it will be time to, to push. And then the kingdom of God will be born. But it will be terrifying and disastrous sort of leading up to that. And, and Jesus doesn't pull any punches on that. Look at verse 9. He says, you will be handed over and persecuted and put to death. Brothers and sisters, we are not immune from, from the horses. Christians will be killed during this time. We're not immune from persecution. It's not like you become a Christian and the horses just all go around you. You know, believers face these challenges too. And the red horse comes and puts believers to death. And the, the, the green horse comes and kills believers and we have to stay faithful. We can't fall away. We can't be deceived. He says, you'll be put to death. You'll be hated by all nations because of me. Verse uh, 13, he who stands firm to the end will be saved. We have to be faithful. Then I love verse 14. This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So the end will come. I'm coming back. The kingdom of God will be birthed. But it's going to be increasing difficulties up till then with wars and famines and earthquakes and persecution, but also the gospel going to all the nations so that, you know, remember the scroll is judgment and salvation. God's judgment is happening right now, but salvation is also happening right now as missionaries go out and give their lives to tell the gospel and a person is saved here in that village and a family is saved in that city around the world. And so God's kingdom is growing, salvation is growing, but persecution is growing at the same time and suffering. And so we, we see judgment and salvation escalating until they reach their culmination in the return of Christ. 
And, and so that same thought is here in Matthew 24, I think, in this just different imagery, going back to Revelation chapter 6. As the end times increase, the horses run wild. And that leads me to the third and final observation, which is the presence of the Lamb. The seals, the horses, and then the Lamb. And what is so interesting in this text is that the Lamb is opening the seals. The Lamb is sending the horses out. Heaven is authorizing their activity. It's very clear that the white rider is given a crown. The red rider is given a sword. Uh, the, The pale rider is given power to kill. And so this idea that that these things are just running wild and Jesus is getting a phone call in heaven. Jesus, do you know what's going on? What's going on down there? I don't know. No, no, no. He's the one who's popping the seals and who is sovereign over the forces of evil. He is the one who is sending them forth for these purposes. And again, it brings us back to that question. How could this be? How could God do, you know, earthquakes and famines and disasters and death? You know, how? These are evil things, aren't they? Yes, they're not good. And yet somehow God is sovereign and is using them for His purposes. What possible purposes could God accomplish through, through the disasters that we hear about and, and the things we live through? What, what possibly could He be doing? And I, I can't tell you that I even begin to fully understand the ways of God. I, I don't know the mind of the Lord God's purposes and plans are infinitely complex. I mean, for crying out loud, God, is, God made DNA up. You know, Think how complex DNA is. Think how complex a cell is. Why do I think that I could understand his sovereign purposes for all humanity if I can barely get my mind around a cell or DNA? So, so I'm not going to stand here and say that I know why God does everything that God does. But I do think he shows us some reasons why he does the things he does. And... And if nothing else, I think we can say that in these great disasters and catastrophes, as these horses gallop throughout the earth and trample things down, that God is at least doing two things. He is judging and He is saving. Because what's the scroll? It's judgment and salvation. And so as those things are popped, those seals are popped, judgment and salvation are being set loose in the earth. And so God is judging and He is saving. You know, you know, think of some horrible thing that happens where people die. And we say, why did this happen, God? What are your purposes? Well, judgment and salvation. I mean, take, take the death of a person. Why does God allow people to die? I mean, let's just face that one. We're all going to die. We all have an expiration date. We're not going to live forever in this life, in this way. We are all sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. And, and God said to Adam and Eve, the day you eat of this fruit, you shall surely die. And so death is a part of our our experience. And that day is coming. For some of us it's further, for some of us it's closer. We don't know when it is. But but we know that someday we must face that that moment. And when a person finally comes to the day of death and God takes back the life that He has given, then, then what? Well, it's either a day of judgment or a day of salvation for the person. 
If the person has rejected Christ, if they have continually stiff-armed God, if they have ignored all of God's entreaties, if they have rejected the light of nature and the light of moral conscience within them and have not sought the Lord, if they have turned their backs on God and again and again said, yeah, 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 I'm doing it my way. You know, God doesn't wait forever. There is a date when God finally says, that's enough. And so for some people, the day of death is the day of judgment. Hebrews says it's destined for man once to die and then to face judgment. We're not reincarnated. He didn't have a past life. This is it. Okay? We face judgment after this. And and so how long are we going to keep putting God at arm's length and saying, yeah, 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 eventually. Look, we don't know when we're going to face Him. And so for some... When a disaster strikes and some die, all we can say is this is God's judgment day for that person. Now, I'm not even going to pretend to know who's who and who's saved and who isn't. That's not my business at all. I, I just got to look to my own soul and say, am I saved? Do I have the Lord? That's the day of judgment. For others, the day of death is the day of salvation. If you have Jesus, then what are you afraid of? You know, Like Paul says, for me to live as Christ... To die, yeah, it's a game. It's a bonus. You know, what, what am I afraid of? My favorite, one of my favorite Puritan sermons on death is a funeral sermon entitled, A Believer's Last Day is His Best Day. That's my best day. I'm finally going to be with the Lord. What am I afraid of? You know, Paul said to be absent from the body is present with the Lord. You know, I would rather be, I mean, I wouldn't want this to be the case, but if I had to choose, I would rather be dying under a pile of rubble in an earthquake with Jesus than to be healthy and a millionaire and a playboy and living the life without Jesus. You know? Like, forget that. You know, what, what will a man give in exchange for his soul? You know? Better to, if you gain the whole world but lose your soul, I mean, what does it matter? If you have Christ, you have everything. If you don't have Christ, you have nothing. And so, so for a believer, you know, you say, why did that person die? And they knew the Lord, but why did they die at such a young age? Or why did, they, why did God take them? It was the day of salvation. This was the day that they're entering into the Lord's presence, and someday they will rise again. And so God is accomplishing His purposes even in death. But what about for those of us who survive, who, who live through difficult, horrible circumstances, who live through economic downturns, or people around the world who are displaced by war or, or made homeless or, or orphaned and live through these terrible experiences. What about them? What is God doing in those cases with those who survive? And again, I don't even know. I can't even begin to answer everything He does. But I know that at least He's somehow accomplishing judgment and salvation. You know, for those who live who don't know the Lord, it's a judgment of warning. It's a warning. When you see terrible things on the news, you should take warning. You, know, you think the earthquake was bad in Haiti. You think a disaster is bad. Like people, and they are. They're horrible. But they're like a little speck compared to what it will be like when God returns in His wrath. You know? I mean, the judgment day is going to completely undo the world. And, and we just, we're not ready for it. We just don't think that God would ever really take righteousness seriously. But He does. And He's coming back to judge the earth. And so I think when these things happen, we should 
read them as a warning sign and to get our attention and start paying attention to the Lord. Kind of like the tingling in your arm before the, the uh, heart attack. Are you paying attention to the signs that God is giving? Are you waking up? Are you listening? Um, I, I will never forget, probably like all of us, I'll never forget the experiences of the week of 9-11. Those images and the thing, and I, I don't even know anyone who died, but just the images, I, I feel like, uh, like in the Westerns when the, the guys put the branding iron in the fire and then they brand the cow. I feel like I have those, those images sort of branded somewhere in my heart. And any time I see those things again, I just instantly am brought back in a kind of a painful way. And, you know, the, I don't know if I'll ever shake that in this life. But, and, and I remember, ooh, that Friday after 9-11, we had a prayer service here. It was at 7, 7.30, something like that. I'm going to tell you folks, it was standing room only in this church for that prayer meeting. Never been to a prayer meeting like that. The seats were full. People were standing on the sides. There were people standing in the foyer. There were people standing on the stairs who couldn't even see in the room but were just listening on the stairways. It was amazing, you know. People were seeking the Lord that night. Where were they a month later? It wasn't just our church. This was a national phenomenon. We we woke up for one week. Wake up. People were coming into church. People I'd never seen. I just come into the sanctuary here. Random people would just be in our sanctuary praying. Where are they now? Where are we now? Have we not heeded the warnings that God has sent? That He is sovereign. That our lives are fleeting. And that someday we will have to face our judge. And that all of these terrible things are just little glimpses of what it's like to face the Lord on His judgment day. But these terrible events are not only warnings of judgment. They're also moments of salvation. And you're like, how can that be? How can, how can going through a terrible experience be a moment of salvation? Well, for us as Christians, God uses suffering to purify us. It's one of the best things for our discipleship. And I'm not asking for it, but He sends it when we're ready. And He purifies our hearts. When we go through suffering, we learn to trust Him. When we go through suffering, we... We see things in ourselves, sin that God takes care of and gets rid of. It doesn't have to be suffering because we did something wrong, just suffering. God uses it to purify His saints and and deepen the salvation within them. And and so God doesn't waste these things. You know, why do these things happen to Christians? I, I don't have all the answers, but I know God uses them to purify them. The other thing God uses it for, and this sort of takes me back to the beginning of the sermon, to deepen our compassion for people in need. People who have suffered are often far more compassionate than people who haven't. And as Christians, when we go through suffering, God redeems that and uses our suffering to then have more compassion on others who need to know Christ and others who are in suffering. See, people, this is the great thing about Jesus and serving Him. Nothing is ever wasted. And God doesn't waste our suffering. He doesn't waste our trials. Christian suffer for a purpose. It's not random, meaningless, and chaotic, though we sometimes feel it at times. God is sovereign. The Lamb is reigning, and He's guiding these forces for our ultimate salvation. And He uses these terrible experiences in our lives. We come out the other side if we stay faithful to Him. Our our, Our faith is refined like pure gold, and the dross is burned away. And we find that we love Jesus more than ever and that we know how to trust Him more and we're more useful to Him because we've been broken and learned to trust in Him. Ultimately, we know that suffering 
is under God's sovereign control and that He uses it for His purposes. Because we remember, who is it who opens the seals? It's the Lamb who was slain. Right? The one opening the seals was slain. Jesus entered our world and on that cross He basically said, trample me down, horsemen. And He allowed Himself to be conquered. He allowed Himself to be killed. He allowed death and Hades to take Him. He was deprived and hungry and thirsty. He allowed sin and evil and judgment to trample Him down so that through faith in Him, we could be forgiven. And so the One who calls us to follow Him through the veil of suffering is the One who has gone through Himself and come to the other side. And so, brothers and sisters, stop looking at the horses. Look at the Lamb. Because the Lamb is sovereign. Jesus told us to take up our cross daily and follow Him. He said, this is the way. He didn't say, get in your lazy boy and follow Me. He said, take up your cross. Take up your cross. And so following Jesus is an embracing of the cross. It doesn't mean that our lives are always miserable. Christians' lives are filled with joy. Sometimes we're blessed, you know, whether we're in plenty or in want. The point is, though, that I'm learning to die to myself and live to Christ. I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And so we learn to live as crucified Christians who are following Christ. And so, brothers and sisters, I, I, I don't know where you're at today. Maybe you feel run down. Maybe you're like, God, what's going on with my health, my job? Why do I have this spouse? Why do I have these kids? Why, why do I have this issue in my life? Why can't I find a spouse? Lord, why, why do people at work harass me? You know, whatever it is, we just feel trampled down. And we get so consumed with that. And we wonder, where are you, God? Where are you, God? And I would just call you and call myself. Don't sweat the horses. Look at the Lamb. Look at the Lamb. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for any brother or sister here today who feels like they're face down in the mud with hoof marks all over their back. God, I just pray You'd lift them up and help them to see the Lamb. That, Lord, You'd show them the purpose in their trials. The Lord, they would know that this life is not the end. This life is where we prepare for the kingdom of God. And so God, give us an eternal perspective. Give us, save us from a worldly perspective. And God, I pray for uh, those who, who have questions and doubts and are keeping you at arm's length. Lord, I pray that they would not wait forever. That they would recognize that today is the day of salvation. Tomorrow may not come but that we would take seriously this challenge you give us to repent of our sins and to believe in Jesus in order to be saved. Thank you for Jesus, who is the Lamb. And I pray that all of us, no matter where we're at today, no matter what we came in here today with, Lord, that we would be able to lay it down and look at the Lamb and keep our eyes fixed on Him. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.